So what do you say? Want to get into scripture together? Could you give me some? You got to like be vocal. You got to. Thank you. Okay. Open your Bible to Acts chapter one. Open your Bible to Acts chapter one. We're going to get into it. Somebody asked me this week, uh, I was told that last week was a little academic and they said that that, that like that was a problem. I didn't understand what that meant. They said it was like it was weird. Uh, but, and then I was also asked, are we going to get out of chapter one this week? I said, we spent 35 minutes on five verses. I don't think so. We're going to be in Acts chapter one, verses uh, six through 11 today. Acts chapter one, verses six through 11. Uh, let me pray one more time. Is that okay? Uh, Father, thank you for your word. And that in these pages, you reveal to us what it is to have life and life everlasting, which is both a quantity and a quality. And so, Father, today, may we know uh, your word, may we know you in your word, and may we be uh, a more obedient church because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Hold on, I'm going to test this sucker real fast, see if this works. Or Pam, let's see if that does it. It did not do it. So I will tell you when I need to go to the next one. Is that okay, Pam? Thank you. Can everybody look back at Holden and Pam? And can we all just give them a round of applause? And Preston, too. Uh, Holden has, and Pam and Preston have persevered through just a really difficult season. As you all saw, our online presence just struggle bussing. So we're really just thankful for them and their work. And uh, you see other changes in the space, including our little booth back there. Thanks, Joey and Julia, for taking care of that. So it's, it's a good time. It's a good time. Acts chapter 1. Uh, in May, I finally finished my Masters of Divinity. Uh, hooray, there was much rejoicing. And uh, that was a long, grueling process, uh, especially grueling when I would go down to Dayton for a whole week, and in that week, I would complete one course. So the course would begin at 8 in the morning, it would finish up at 6 o'clock at night, and here's what would happen almost every week. Almost uh, on the last day of the class, it would end a little earlier so we could all go home. And uh, inevitably, like an hour and a half or two hours before we were officially set to end, you could start to tell that the professor was just like running out of stuff right? I mean, they've been teaching for like 40 hours. Of course, at like hour 38, you're eventually just going to be like, how do we get out of here? And so uh, they would start like giving us clear wrapping up the day signals, which always was interpreted by one classmate. And it didn't, and every class was different people. And there was always one in every single class. It always cued that classmate to raise their hand and just drop a bombshell, like crazy debate-starting question that would then like totally derail my ability to come home a couple hours early. Or, or there would be a classmate who after, you know, five days of learning would raise their hand and ask a question that the professor covered in like hour one of day one. And inevitably, every time, I would just smack my hand to my forehead, or more appropriately, just begin to bang my head on the desk, thinking like, when do I get to go home? And as we open up to Acts chapter 1 and we get into verse 6, we seem to have like a similar moment. Uh, The disciples have just been in a 40-day intensive on the kingdom of God. We found out in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. 
And in chapter 1, verse 6, at the end of this 40-day intensive on God's kingdom, one of the disciples raises his hand and asks a question. And that question is in verse 6. It says, so when the apostles were with him, uh, when they were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? That's the question. And in my mind's eye, when I first started studying this passage, all I could see Jesus doing was the same thing I did at the end of my 40-day intensive. I saw Jesus just smack his hand to his forehead saying, okay, really, really, guys? But then I started taking a closer look at the context of chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, about these final moments with his disciples before Jesus ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father. And when I looked at the context and got into it a little more carefully, what I realized is that I had it wrong. The disciples' question here in chapter 1, verse 6, it's not a stupid question. It is, even though teachers in the room are like, there's no such thing as a stupid question. There is, right? Um, uh, It's not a stupid question asked by a student who wasn't paying attention, who's just now trying to catch up at the end. That's not the question. This question, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? That is the question of a student who has been paying careful attention in this 40-day intensive, careful attention, and who is now sitting on the edge of their seat saying, okay, let's stop talking about it. Let's put it into practice. Another way you could read this question would be something like, okay, Jesus, we get it. You're the risen king. You're the Messiah that God has promised. When are we going to get started? Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's been teaching them about how his life and death and resurrection are the fulfillment of the promises given to God's people Israel in the Old Testament. Promises like Isaiah 49 verses 5 and 6, which say, And now the Lord speaks, the one who formed me in my mother's womb to be his servant, who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. The Lord has honored me, and my God has given me strength. This is the fulfillment. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. See, they're borrowing that. Acts chapter 1 verse 6 borrows from Isaiah 49. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation uh, to the ends of the earth. God promised long ago that he was going to make his people a light to the Gentiles, that the salvation that he gave to his people in a covenant with Israel would extend to a multi-ethnic family that would cover the globe. And in his 40-day class on the, kingdom of, on the kingdom, Jesus is saying, the time is now. Jesus saying, uh, the, the time for all of this is to be fulfilled is right now in their midst And that's why they are asking, is now the time? Jesus, we've learned you, we've listened to you teaching, we're ready to go, is now the time? And his answer to their question is found in verse 7. The Father alone, Jesus says, has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. I think if uh, you're out running errands this week and your friend or your spouse calls you and says, what time are you going to be home? I would not say the dates and the times are not for you to know. Uh, uh, but what I like about this is it reminds me actually of uh, one of my all-time favorite television shows, Parks and Rec. 
Um, Parks and Rec uh, is this show that's it's a, it's a documentary kind of knockoff that takes place in a town called Pawnee, Indiana. Uh, in, in this town is a small religious cult, and they're called reasonableists. Uh, and they believe that the world will end. They call themselves reasonableists because what they believe is so crazy. They believe that a giant lizard will come and consume the world in fire. <laughs> and uh, the, the followers of this cult have like searched their sacred texts over and over again to pick the date when the world will end. And so they always gather in a park uh, and they wait until dawn when Zorp and his volcano mouth are going to devour the earth. And for like 20 years, they've been getting the date wrong. Uh, and, and this is a mockery of Christians, by the way, like named Harold Camping. Uh, Harold Camping was notorious for like this kind of behavior, as are a lot of Christians, really. Uh, Harold Camping predicted that the world would end on September 6, 1994. He got it wrong. He picked like a couple other dates that year, got it wrong. And then I, I didn't really remember this until I started looking, but in 2011, on May 21st, 2011, he said, this is the date. Well, listen, like he picked the wrong year because if there was ever going to be a year that it felt like the world was ending, like 2020 was what to go with. Um, but here's the reality is that Christians are really good at, in like social media and in like Bible studies, like trying to figure out like when is the world going to end the date? And that's kind of what Jesus is pushing back against when he says the Father alone has set the days and the times. He's, he's pushing back against a focus on chronology. And instead what he's trying to do is get us focused not on when, but on how, not chronology, but strategy. Uh, he doesn't want us reading newspaper headlines to say, oh, it's happening. And again, while 2020 would be the year that you might feel like the world is ending, uh, talk to people that are older than me, and they would say, I have felt that this was happening about three or four times in my life. Uh, some people feel like the world is ending every four to eight years in election season, right? And, and so it's not about chronology. Jesus' focus is on strategy, which is why he goes on in Acts 1.8 to say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples' question in chapter 1 verse 6 is essentially, okay, when are we going to get started? When are we going to get going? When is the kingdom that you've been teaching us about, when is it going to be established? And Jesus' response is, you know, go ahead and stay put, because things are going to happen really quick. And when they start happening, what you're going to find is that the kingdom of God is established on earth through the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel. See, the question is, when the disciples say, are you going to restore the kingdom, is Jesus' answer in verse 7 and 8, no, but, or yes, and? No, but you'll be my witnesses, and we'll just wait it out, and eventually I'll come back. Or is his answer, and it is, yes. And the way we're going to get it done is you being my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is established by his people in this moment, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel. Last week, we looked at how Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is a little bit of a table of contents uh, to the book. If you jump over to Pam, there's like four columns. 
We looked at how Acts chapter 1 uh, verse 8 is like a table of content to the book of Acts, how it moves, the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, to the Greco-Roman world. But this verse sets down a key theme in the book of Acts, and that theme is that the kingdom of God is expanded when the gospel goes everywhere. Jesus says the gospel will go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This, in our, for us right now, it means the gospel begins, our missionary work begins in our hometown. It's right here where we put our feet. Then it needs to extend to nearby areas and regions and not stop till we have covered the globe. And there's this interesting tendency that, again, Jesus is coming up against here in verse 8. There's a tendency among Christians, and I think even maybe a bit of a spiritual stronghold here in the valley, that anytime global missions comes up, people are very quick to say, oh, but there are needs right here at home. As if to say, let's not worry about what's happening on the other side of the world, let's focus in here. In addition to that being a scarcity mentality, this idea that if I give across the globe, then there's not going to be any more right here. Uh, In addition to a scarcity mentality, it's just wrong. Jesus doesn't suggest that we participate in what God is doing around the globe. He commands it. Jesus doesn't encourage it. He orders it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that each and every one of us, if we wait long enough, are going to get called to be missionaries to Southeast Asia. Uh, But it does mean that we all bear a responsibility to invest our time and our treasure and our talent in what God is doing around the world. If you uh, want to kind of do an America first, if you want to do a Trumbull County first, your issue is not with your church that calls you to care about Cuba or Southeast Asia around the world. Your issue is with Jesus who commands investment in what God is doing around the world. Jesus not only tells the disciples that the gospel has to go everywhere, he pointedly tells them that it has to cross ethnic and racial lines. Jesus explicitly tells the disciples that the gospel must go to, of all places, Samaria. He's talking to Jewish men who have been born and raised and bred in a world that hates Samaritans. Uh, Samaritans are ancestrally related to the Jews, but their bloodline has kind of gotten mixed. It's kind of like the pure blood, mud blood thing from Harry Potter. And um, uh, yes, you're allowed to quote Harry Potter in sermons. And, uh, and, and here's the thing is when Jesus says to them, the gospel's got to go to Samaria, it smacked them across the face. They were happy to take the gospel to faraway places. Historically and traditionally, we believe that one of the 12 Thomas this encounter and goes to India. What they would have struggled with is this idea of the gospel going to a people group uh, that they hate, that they have oppressed, that they have systematically addressed. Is my mic going? There seems to be some texting back and forth. Okay. Jesus says that the gospel has to go everywhere. And we'll see over and over again in the book of Acts how Jesus forces us to give account for racial bias and overcome it through proclaiming the gospel. To be gospel people means that there, are no, there is no such thing as ethnic barrier anymore. So Jesus has kind of nailed down these kind of pieces, this kind of 
a tendency toward chronology or tendency toward like selfishness and scarcity and focusing on right here, this kind of resistance to do what's uncomfortable as far as it re- relates to ethnic unity. But then Jesus nails it even further in by he says, you will be my witnesses. And Jesus says this to the apostles gathered around him in this moment, but through the corridors of time, Jesus is looking over their shoulders and he's looking at you and me. We can't just relegate the call of the witness to professional Christians like pastors and missionaries. Instead, Jesus says that ordinary, everyday people are called to the sacred task of witness and evangelism. And let's be real, this is, this is a hard thing to do. This is a terrifying thing to do. It's a terrifying thing for me. Just this week, I reached out to somebody online who was kind of posting some stuff, and I never engage online. I mean never engage online. I mean never, which has been the hardest thing to do for like the last quarter. But somebody kept kind of just posting something that was just not right, or at least a f- super strong misrepresentation of the way of Jesus. And so I, I just... I wrote a text, and I said, hey, listen, and, and that was hard, okay? It's not like, all, you know, one day you just wake up and it's, it's like not hard anymore. It's a constant embrace of the difficult, isn't it? And this is why when it's hard to speak the gospel to friends and family and neighbors, when it's hard to speak the gospel in a culture committed to individualism and secularism, when it's hard to rise above the clamor of a 24-hour news cycle with a truth claim, when it's hard uh, to know how to disciple our kids, when do I push, when do I let them kind of figure it out, it's hard to know how to let a spouse that isn't on the same page with us spiritually kind of find their way, it's hard to know how to speak the gospel at work and at family gatherings. When it's hard, we need to remember that Jesus does not command anything for which he first does not give us grace. Jesus does not command anything for which he first does not give us grace, which is why Jesus' answer is, you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is why Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but the spirit of love and power and a sound mind. We have been called to a profoundly difficult task. And Jesus says, here is power to aid you in that. But for us to receive the power, Jesus has to ascend to be with his Father. In Acts 1, we read of Jesus' ascension, of his return to the Father. This is one of the most forgotten parts of Jesus' ministry and one of the most confusing because uh, why does Jesus need to go? Why, why can't he just stay with us? The disciples are here on their 40-day class, and at the very end of it, the text says, they saw Jesus rising into heaven. This is verses one through nine, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. After saying these things, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why are you standing here staring into heaven? I mean, did they just think Jesus was like running upstairs to grab something and he was coming right back? (laughs) Jesus has been taken taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. 
We see these words rising up into heaven and uh, ascending, and we are reminded of the words of our good friend and representative Jim Trafficant. Uh, Jim Trafficant uh, was famous for a few things. He was our congressman from 85 to 2002. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, in addition to being famous for really bad hair pieces, uh, he also just had a lot of really good one-liners. And, and this, by the way, is kind of outside of my generation. Uh, so, but it's my friends who were born in the 1900s that helped me know these things. And, um, and one of his favorite things to say on the floor of the, the U.S. House of Representatives, he would say, beam me up, Mr. Speaker. A little Star Trek reference, right? Like, our world is so strange. Whatever we're talking about is so weird. Clearly, I must be in another universe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker. And when we think about Jesus ascending into heaven, that's what we think about. We think of Jesus like, right, into heaven, like teleported up. And it says he went up on a cloud. Let me see if I can blow your mind in at least three more times before we're done this morning. When the disciples and the apostles talk about Jesus rising up into heaven, it's not like Jesus is just going upstairs. When we think of heaven as way up there and us way down here, we're actually not think. if we think like there's the clouds and on the other side of it is heaven somewhere. What we're actually thinking is more like Platonists, not Christians. Because for the way of Jesus, Christian theology, starting even all the way back in the Old Testament, heaven is not way up here while we're down here. Heaven is almost, it's pictured as this other dimension and this other reality that is constantly bumping up and intersecting with and even affecting our own. And so, yes, while the disciples see Jesus going up, they wouldn't have necessarily thought Jesus is going to hang up upstairs, hang out upstairs until he's ready to come back down, which is why the apostles also describe Jesus' return as an appearing Even though Jesus goes in a vertical direction, it's not so much that Jesus goes way up into heaven. It's that Jesus steps out of our reality and into the truest reality. This place where heaven, uh, this place called heaven that intersects with our reality all the time, this place called heaven that we pray would come on earth. This place that meets, heaven and earth meet in the body of Jesus. What I'm saying is that one day when Jesus appears, When Jesus appears, it's not going to necessarily, it's going to be as if Jesus steps out from behind a curtain, and we see that there he was in our midst the whole time, that he really was always and never stopped being our Emmanuel, the one who ruled from this place, intersecting with our reality, which is why instead of thinking of teleportation when we think of heaven, it's better to think like ancient Celts thought. Celtic theology has this notion of thin places. These places often in nature, I have a nice nature pick, Pam, that, ah, see? These places in nature where the barrier between this world and the next wears thin. I mean, have you, have you ever been in nature and been so struck by beauty and awe? Have you ever been singing a song in worship, and been so stirred in, inside of yourself that you were moved to tears? Have you ever studied a passage of Scripture and felt like you were in God's presence? Have you ever had someone pray for you, and as they prayed, you weren't just receiving their comfort? It's as if 
God's very own comfort were flowing through them to you. That's a moment when heaven touches earth. That is a thin place. And as we'll see next week, actually, the people of God collectively are to be a thin place. When we gather together, we're to find a thin place where heaven, this reality that is in and with and under our own, starts to overtake and become heavier as God's presence is manifested among us. And it is Jesus ascending or going to that place that causes the Holy Spirit to come. But it is the Holy Spirit who is the presence of Jesus, who is in and amongst us, encouraging us, clothing us with himself, so that what is impossible alone becomes possible with God. When Jesus ascends and sends the Holy Spirit, he remains our Emmanuel, our God with us. And Jesus says, from this place of ruling and reigning and honor at his, right, at his Father's right hand, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. He says, you, you will establish the kingdom on earth. You will do it as you proclaim the gospel here in your town and in the region surrounding. Jesus is asking you to tell others about him. In fact, he's not asking, he's telling. We tend to think that being the job of having the job of witnessing, of bringing heaven to earth, is the job of professional Christians. But the minute you said yes to Jesus, the minute you said yes to Jesus, you received a call to be a missionary. John Wesley, the founder of our movement, wrote in his journal on June 11th, uh, uh, June 11th, 1739, he says, I look upon all the world as my parish. Thus far I mean that in whatever part of it I am, I judge it meet and right in my bounden duty to declare unto all that they are, that are willing to hear the glad tidings of salvation. John Wesley broke a lot of rules. He wouldn't stay where he was supposed to stay. He wouldn't just preach in churches, he would preach in fields. He didn't just stay in the town that he was told to stay in by his bishop. He went other places, and he said, I do this because it is my bounden duty. Wesley calls on us to see everywhere our feet are as our mission field. Everywhere our feet might be, Wesley says, is the mission field to which we have been called called and possessing a bounden duty. And, and, and when, when someone struggles uh, with sharing their faith, which as I look even in this room, I have yet to see one of you saying, I am a 10 out of 10, always hitting it out of the park in this area. Those of you online may feel the same way. When we struggle in this area, it's either an issue of character, of competency, or focus of character, of competency, or focus. Could be other reasons, but those are three I frequently see. Sometimes it's an issue of character, the reason we're not sharing the gospel. And we try to mask it, don't we, uh, with personality. Well, I'm very introverted. 
Jesus didn't say, I looked at the Greek, he didn't say, you will be my witnesses. Unless you're introverted, then you're off the hook. Uh, Jesus didn't say, you have to be formally trained. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, they noticed that it is common, uneducated men who proclaim the gospel. Generally, what we mask as personality, Jesus calls character. It is a heart that is cold toward lost people. It is a heart that does not break for what breaks God's. It is a heart that is filled uh, with uh, judgment or self-righteousness or fear instead of a heart of compassion and humility. We try to say, I want to stay inside my comfort zone, but the thing we all know, the thing we all know is this, that just outside of our comfort zone is the transformation zone, and that's where Jesus calls us. So try to mask it with personality flaw as much as we will. It's a character thing. It's a heart thing. As I'm preaching this morning, is it a heart issue that Jesus is putting his finger on? Sometimes... It's not a hard thing. It's like a head and a hands thing. We don't have the competency. I don't know how to do it. If somebody said, like asked me tomorrow at work, hey, could you share the gospel with me? I would go, I don't know, right? This is where we have this little tool uh, called the three Bs, uh, which I just want to review with you real fast. I'm thinking about maybe slowing this down and doing a video online this week, but it's just a simple way of articulating the gospel. When I share the gospel, I, I start with what we have in common, that we all know that the world is broken. Okay, we know this more in 2020 than maybe we did in 2019, but we know that the world is broken, that the world is marked by sadness, sickness, and suffering. By sadness, sickness, and suffering. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we know this like deep in the heart of our memory because we know that the world was created in beauty. We know that the world was created in beauty, that the world was once a place without pain, without problems, and without punishments. This world of beauty became a world of brokenness through sin. Sickness, sadness, and suffering comes from sin. It started with our first parents, and it continues with us. That letter I in the word sin reminds me that I go my own way. And so the world becomes sicker and sadder and filled with more suffering. But there is hope. There is hope for us to experience the beauty again. God put forth his son, Jesus, who was who we were always supposed to be, who is the king of the universe, who comes to offer us new birth who comes to offer future and freedom and forgiveness. He comes to invite us to live a life of these things, future freedom and forgiveness, simply by turning and following him. Jesus came on the scene and he said, repent and believe the good news. And repent and believe are fancy words from turning my own way and following him. And a life of following him gives me a future and freedom and forgiveness, but it also gives me an opportunity to help restore the world to how it was always supposed to be. Jesus calls me to partner with him in making all things new. And as I do, the world is restored to beauty. And I tell this story and I draw these circles on a napkin and then I always say something really intimidating. I say, do you want to turn and follow Jesus today? And it occurs to me, by the way, that some of you listening this morning might be hearing the fullness of this story for the first time. Do you want to turn and follow Jesus today? 
Sometimes it's an issue of the heart, and sometimes it's an issue of we don't know what to do, and I need to go back to the books, and I need to study, and I need to learn so I'm prepared, right? Peter says, always be ready with an answer for the hope that is within you. Sometimes it's character, sometimes it's competency, and let me end with this, sometimes it's focus. Sometimes people are so excited to be sharing the gospel that they can't stand still and engage in a relationship with person, a person. So they're sharing this on social media and having this conversation and that conversation and this conversation and that conversation, and there's goodness to that. But if you aim at everything, you'll hit nothing almost every time. And when Jesus sends out his apostles on a missions trip in Luke chapter 10, he says, when you find somebody that God is working in, stay there and don't leave. And so maybe the question for you this morning is is a focus. Who are your three? Who are the three people that God has called you to be pressing into this season? Or the three places I can kind of passive-aggressively share some social media things. I can kind of do this. I can buy. But who are the three people that Jesus is saying, stay with them? And whether your challenge is in character, competency, or focus, Jesus responds with the same grace. Jesus responds with the same grace. If it's an issue of character, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit who convicts us of a heart that isn't like his. Jesus convicts us of hearts that are cold toward lost people. If it's an issue of competency, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do what he calls us to do. And if it's an issue of focus, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit who will highlight faithfully the people in whom he is working so that we can pursue them with the gospel. And you may think, you may think that God can't use you. You may think that you're too afraid to be used. You may think that you have nothing to offer. You may think that your past and your hurts are too great. You may think you're not smart enough, not spiritual enough. You may think you're too old. You may think you're too young. But my friends, God has always, always used ordinary people, broken people, to advance his kingdom. He isn't looking for the equipped He isn't looking for the knowledgeable, the skilled, the wise, or the perfect. He is looking for people who, hearing his call, which, by the way, today, if you you can't pick a date, July 19, 2020, was when I received my call to be a missionary. He's looking for people who respond like the prophet Isaiah, who simply said, here I am, send me. Steph, would you uh, come and lead us in some response time? Um, it's been a while since we've done this um, together, so I'm excited to, to be back together as we do this. But I just want to invite you, um, just a couple things that the Lord kind of brought to mind as Kyle was preaching. And the first is just that if it's um, a character issue, if you if you found yourself kind of thinking like, yeah, I'm not sure that my heart is broken for the lost, um, I do want to just invite you to repent, to say to the Lord, like, I confess that I have not... Um, I have not had compassion toward those who are far from you. I have not loved those who don't know you. Um, and, and Father, would you forgive me of that? Would you transform my heart and my mind um, to be like yours? So that would be the first thing I'd invite you to do in this time. 
Um, if that wasn't so much the issue for you and maybe you just thought, I don't even know where to start, um, I do want to invite you in this time to write down the names of three people. And even if it's not necessarily that you get to interact with them all the time, because our lives are a little different right now and we don't see people as much as we used to, um, this is a wonderful time to press into prayer. And so who are the three people that you're going to commit to start praying for today um, that you're going to say, Father, like, I want to share the truth with them. When you give me the opportunity, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to do that. But I'm going to start first with prayer and just be praying for them over the next few days and weeks and months until I have that opportunity. So I'm going to take just a couple of minutes of, of quiet. So I'd invite you to, um, to either kind of step into that repentance place or, or to write down those three names and just start praying for them right now. And then um, we'll continue on from there.